0: When you're in a leader, public leadership position, the part of the job that is the most fulfilling is when people really need your help, not when you're implementing your five-point plan that most people don't care about, although I you know, was pretty passionate about my five-point plans.
1: Welcome to the News Items Podcast. As our regular listeners know, we post episodes every Monday through Thursday afternoon. But on some Saturdays, like today, for instance... We release one of our interviews in its entirety, unedited, warts and all, for you to listen to. Today, it's an interview with former Florida Governor Jeb Bush. Welcome to today's interview. We have as our guest Jeb Bush, the former governor of Florida, and I should point out uh, my first cousin. His father and my mother were brother and sister. And Jeb and I have known each other, obviously, for a very long time. (laughs) Jeb, welcome to News Items, the podcast.
0: It's good to be with you.
1: I think that the expectation is that we'll ask Jeb about Trump and about uh, the future of the Republican Party. And I want to say right up top, we're going to ask none of those questions. Uh, The questions that we're going to ask have to do with Florida and how the state has changed. During his time, he first ran for governor in 1994, so why don't we start there? Um, what was Florida, the Florida that you ran for governor for in 1994, what was that like and how does it compare to the Florida of today?
0: Well, John, it's good, good being with you. Um, just a quick story, uh, John's name was going to be, as I understand it, John Bush Ellis, uh, his mom told my dad that that was the case. I came into the world two two weeks before, and my name is John Ellis Bush. Stole the darn name from you, John. I'm sorry.
1: It's a longer. It's actually a longer story, according to my mother's telling, which <laughs> is that she wanted to name uh, her son, if it was a boy, uh, John Walker Ellis after our great uncle John Walker. Yep. Uh, who was a surgeon in New York and whose life was exactly bifurcated by polio. Um, 41 years as this extraordinary surgeon and athlete and 41 years essentially in a wheelchair. So she really wanted to name him, uh, name me, if if it was to be a boy, which it turned out to be, uh, John Walker Ellis. And she said this to your father. And your father said, what a great idea. If, if Barr has a boy, uh, we'll name him John Walker Bush. And uh, so my mother said, if you do that, I will never speak to you again because it means that much to me to, if it's a boy to name him after Uncle Johnny Walker. So you were born two weeks ahead of me and your father called my mother uh, that day and said, nanny, great news, great news. It's a boy. And I name him John Ellis Bush, call him by his initials Jeb, if that's okay with you. So my mother relented. That's her side. I like story.
0: that story, and I'm so thankful she did relent because uh, I've used that name. It, it travels well.
1: So tell us about how Florida has changed, Jeb. Florida in
0: 1994 was a a, a state that was fast growing. Uh, it was probably the fastest growing state, but it wasn't. Uh, ha- it had not developed. Uh, deep roots in terms of a diversified economy, uh, strong sense of community. Um, it was it was a place that people came to visit. It was a lot of uh, back then, we had a thousand people a day moving into the state, but we had the third highest number of people leaving, and the highest number of people moving moving in. So it was a state that was where everybody was from someplace else. There wasn't a sense of community. It's still a challenge for our state, but in you know over over time, our corporate you know the relocation of businesses has has uh, solidified the economy. Uh, the economy is more diversified for sure. Um, our business climate has yielded uh, pretty good results. Our the university system has improved dramatically. Our K twelve system was literally at the bottom of the heap. Fiftieth out of fifty in terms of high school graduation rates, and and those have seen marked improvements as well. Uh, commitment to infrastructure, commitment to the natural environment—all those things have been uh, a bipartisan commitment, really, from uh, both Democrats and Republicans. And so, I think I think Florida's better off today than it was in 1994.
1: When you uh, were elected governor in 1998, you. You inherited, if you will, uh, these issues, I guess you would say. Um, so there you are, and it's day one of your administration. What What did you set out as your three main goals, and and how did you set about to accomplish me?
0: Well, John, that was so long ago that um, <laughs> actually candidates were rewarded for having proposals. So my campaign was really a blueprint of what I wanted to do. And it ranged from bringing real accountability to our K-12 system. That was probably the number one issue in the campaign. And it was what I was most passionate about. Uh, Focusing on improving the business climate was another issue. Uh, We had the largest land purchasing program in the country called Florida. Uh, We changed the name to Florida Forever and extended it for 10 years. We moved to a community-based care model for child welfare it was a three or four years of really active, uh, policymaking, the federal legislature. And, um, I was the first Republican governor with a Republican legislature. So there was, there was a lot of action for sure. And, um, and it was interesting because it was a transformation beyond just the politics. Uh, I'm, you know, bilingual, bicultural from Miami, a conservative. It was, uh, that's not the norm for Florida, uh, leadership up till then. It was basically moderately liberal white males that kind of dominated the governorship, the Supreme court, the legislature, they all went to the university of Florida. It was kind of the good old boy network, uh, was shattered a bit by, by my arrival. We had a really diverse cabinet, uh, that reflected the diversity of the state and, um, I was at the time, I still am, I'm not, I'm not kidding, conservative. So we got to do a lot of things that that uh, hadn't been tried in the state. Uh, and it, to me, you know, I, I kind of yearn for that to come back. It happens at the state level a lot more than it does in D.C. Here in Florida, uh, Governor DeSantis and the legislature are, are doing big things. And many other states, both Democrat led by Democrats and Republicans, they got to balance their budgets, and they got to, you know, they say what they want to do, and they they're rewarded for doing what they said they'd do. Uh, that's not the case, obviously, in DC these days.
1: Right. There's a each state is different, and uh, one of the you know one of the things I think about when I think about a state is what are the what are the parts of the state. So if you were to say uh, what sort of the parts of California, you would say. Southern, L- Southern California and LA, uh, the Inland Empire, Northern California, and uh, the San Francisco Bay Area Complex, including Silicon Valley. What are the, what are the sort of parts of Florida um, that make up the state?
0: Well, we probably have five regions. You have uh, t- the Tampa Bay Area is the largest in terms of population. Uh, Southwest Florida is a place that, uh, is growing by leaps and bounds. The panhandle, which is predominantly rural, other than once you get off the coast is uh, very different than, than Miami, which is Miami is a Miami Dade County has 3.2 million people and 60% of them. I think at last count, uh, were born outside the United States. It is distinct from anything else uh in the state for that reason alone and then south florida um you know from fort lauderdale up uh past palm beach is another important sector and then you have orlando so there there are five or six regions um that are dis- distinct um it makes it fun politically you know to campaign in a place that's as diverse and it's it was governing was also a blast because uh you know, you had very different constituencies that were impacted by policy.
1: One thing I've I've uh, sort of struck me about Florida um, is obviously you have uh, waves of immigration. As you point out, 60% are not born, uh, 60% of Miami-Dade County is not born uh, in Florida or in the United States. Um, how is it that immigration in Florida sort of Seems so much less contentious and difficult, if you will, than it does elsewhere in the country.
0: Um, I, I would say that it's 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 under the surface. There are you know there's concerns about illegal immigration in Florida, but generally, because uh, Republicans have done better uh, with immigrant groups, their voices are heard. You know, if you look at the uh, Dade County delegation; its majority. Republican, and those, those uh, elected officials are predominantly Hispanic. So um, I think that matters. I think if, if you know there's greater awareness, greater sensitivity because Hispanics have traditionally been part of the team. The lieutenant governor of the state, uh, Jeanette Nunez is uh, of uh, Hispanic origin. So the rewards of, of creating kind of conflict in the immigration debate, um, aren't as aren't as apparent here as they are maybe in uh, out in the you know Arizona or California, and our border is different. Our immigration you know comes either through the Mexican border, people coming illegally take this torturous route through Mexico and then all the way around the Gulf of Mexico into Florida, or they come by boats. Uh, There truly are refugees. So it's a different, uh, it's a different feel for sure. And I'm proud of the fact that we, you know, elected officials don't get rewarded for saying stupid things about immigration. (laughs) I'm kind of happy that's the case. One
1: thing that struck me was after the storms in, uh, in Puerto Rico, uh, it was said, I'm not sure this is exactly right, but 75,000 people who lived in Puerto Rico uh, moved to uh, Florida, particularly the Orlando area, um, that was made easy, obviously, or easier by the fact that they uh, had American passports and were American citizens. But um, but in terms of seventy five thousand people move from Puerto Rico to Orlando, and it barely creates a ripple, at least in the press. Did, is that in fact true? Did, was it Orlando capable? Was it was able to assume that many people in such a short period of time
0: well when you got a when you can pay for 49 bucks to get a, jet, a seat on jet blue from san juan to orlando uh it's pretty easy to to move it's one of the successes now we're seeing of the migration from north to south as well uh the absorb the ability to absorb that many people there were there were strains for sure strains on social services uh fema had to Step up, and they did. Uh, But look, this is just a dynamic state. We're not; uh, it's it's always changing, and uh, as such, those those kinds of events uh, seem to seem to work better here than other places.
1: One thing you told me a while back is that uh, the image of Florida is uh, the old, you know, a state for old people. But the fact is that. It is really now a state for young people. Can you run, run us through that, how that took place?
0: We have, uh, we have, you know, our family formation rates are higher here. Um, we, we're growing across the demographic spectrum for sure. Uh, we still have people that come to retire. And you think about it, John, Medicare, which is the reimbursement means for anybody over over 68 now, I guess, or 65, 65 um, is financed 100% by the federal government. And so um, it's a huge economic benefit to have a uh, healthy elderly population. All the services that are provided uh, create job opportunities. So it's an economic development tool for us to continue to have a uh, Folks move to our state because of our weather and because of uh, a simpler life. You look at the the largest um, home building community is the villages in Florida. Uh, they they basically have I think three to four thousand housing starts a year. So we still have a a, a surge of people coming to retire, uh, but we also have a very dynamic now uh, population of people striving for success. And that seems to have accelerated in the COVID environment. I mean, it's just anecdotal, but the number of people I'm meeting uh, has that that have you know great ideas or building businesses uh, or innovators in the tech space uh, or in the financial service space—it's exploded. And um, I think people have now realize they can work where they live, not the other way around. And so. That, uh, that change in mindset has created an explosion, not just in Miami, but um, all throughout South Florida and, and even in the Tampa Bay and Orlando areas as well. People are migrating from California, they're migrating from Illinois, from, uh, from the Northeast, and it doesn't look like that's a temporary uh, trend. It looks like it's becoming more permanent.
1: I have a, a friend at Goldman Sachs uh, named John Rogers who is the vice chairman of uh, Goldman and he said that he thought that financial services companies in general uh, would be able to do what they do with one-third less real estate and that it, because of what they've learned from COVID, they could also do what they do with more people living where they wanted to live. Um, and I wonder if this influx that we read about of New Yorkers uh, going to Florida, setting up shop—I'm um, thinking particularly of Elliott Management, where a friend of mine works, but also J.P. Morgan Chase and others—is that—is that going? I mean, first of all, are you seeing financial services move to Florida in in big numbers? And uh, do you think that'll eventually it'll become sort of a second Wall Street? I guess.
0: Yeah, the the tradition of people moving have been, you know, you buy your home here, you're semi retired, you live here um part time and then you become a permanent resident. This is a new trend of younger people moving with the recognition, as you said, that you can you can live anywhere. Um and the, the, the place is welcoming. You know, it's it's very different. Francis Suarez is, is a young, dynamic mayor of the city of Miami, and he just you know he sends a signal to uh, to the tech tech sector: come, you'll be welcome. We invite you. The places where uh, the innovators exist, if they if you look at the, the, the states where where they where they reside, there's a hostility to their success, and um, the mindset in Florida is very different. Uh, and, and because of that, because we're more welcoming, I think we're getting a deeper surge of people that are aspiring to a better life. You know, when you're rich, you can live anywhere you want. If you've already created your wealth and made it, you know the, the burdens of states that are that are hostile to to your interests, you can you know you can organize yourself around it. But if you're aspiring to success, uh, aspiring to make a difference in society, aspiring to build a, you know, a net worth for your family, it's hard to do it when when the environment around you is very hostile. So, uh, the states that are haven't figured this out are going to are, are suffering. New York State, I guess, is planning to increase taxes on high income people. It makes no sense to me, particularly since there's this massive transfer of money from the federal government to states and local governments to deal with COVID. Uh, this is not the right time, I don't think, for states to be raising taxes, but the minute they do it, it just creates another surge of people voting with their feet and moving down here.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I know a lot of people in New York who have already made the jump uh, to Florida, uh, South Carolina, et cetera. Um, and I think that, you know, the, the New York City mayoral race, uh, if it produces a result that is hostile, let's say, to the Financial Services Committee community, um, I think you're going to okay. see a lot more of them uh, decamp to Florida, South Carolina, Texas, etc. Um, one thing about economic development uh, that people say, and it's probably true, is that you put together degrees and density and you're going you're gonna to have a lot of uh, – Economic activity and uh, and entrepreneurial uh, endeavors. Um, when you took over as governor in 1998, the uh, university system in Florida was not as highly regarded as you perhaps wanted it to be. What what specifically did you do with the university system that has you know sort of kickstarted and Led to its uh, remarkable improvement.
0: Well, um, I think most of the credit for the improvement uh, has been not just during, we started the process of reform of our universities, certainly its governance model, but uh, Governors Scott and uh, DeSantis deserve a lot of credit for continuingly, you know, constantly changing, you know, the policies to make sure that they're outcome based uh, and. And focusing on research and development, so one of the initiatives that uh, was started under my watch and continued was uh, to help support life science research institutions, and it had the you know we we recruited the Scripps Research Institute, the Torrey Pines Research Institute, Burnham, uh, Max Planck from uh, Germany, and a couple. The University of Miami bought uh, brought a incredible team of scientists uh, from Duke. So we were successful in planning these research flags uh, that helped create a, as you said, a community of researchers. The financial crisis of 2008 2009 had an impact on slowing down uh, the development of a life science sector in our state, but it's now picking up steam. So uh, a focus on research and a focus, a focus, I think, on access to make sure that you have high quality institutions that that can give people a chance to get a four-year degree in four years in a very affordable way every student at the university of florida is qualified for a bright future scholarship which effectively gives them free tuition and florida state university very similar it's a merit-based system but it it generates a, a very diverse student body uh because of the reforms that we've had in k-12 and um affordability which is really important for uh, building you know a, a class of workers uh, and providers in your state, you want to make sure you have a higher percentage of, of people adults that are college educated so we've gone we've done a lot from in the last twenty years i'd say to to get to a point where we're no longer at the bottom. in fact, I would say our public university system is recognized as one of the best
1: I think that's right I wanted to ask Florida is, is- as as a former governor, you, you know this only too well. Endures, uh, I guess, is the word. Uh, hurricane season, some of <laughs> which are worse than others, um, and is also uh, seeing sea level rise. Um, this is uh, you know under comes under the broad category of climate uh, and climate change. How how uh, how is the state preparing for what most people expect to be even higher uh, sea levels and even stronger storms?
0: I think we're beginning to develop uh, resiliency strategies. Uh, it's it's in cooperation between it's a cooperative effort between state and local governments, but I think we need to do a lot more. It's clearly one of the defining. Challenges for the state, uh, and it impacts everything. You know, if if you can't access property insurance because of these uh, these risks that are increasing because of rising sea level, if you can't, if we don't have a, a strategies of adaptability, your your water supply is going to be uh, damaged. You have to make these long term investments. Uh, you can't protect the natural systems all around us. One of the reasons why people like to live here is it's a beautiful place. And um, sea level rise also creates saltwater intrusion into our water supplies. You know, we don't have big reservoirs because it's a pretty flat place. So uh, 90% of our 55 inches of rainfall go out to tide or transvaporate. So you have to build long-term solutions to protect uh, the coastline, particularly, and uh, develop growth management strategies where you know you're pricing into uh, the the cost of uh, living in particular places that have higher probabilities of storms and floods. So we got a long way to go in this area. I'm not sure any any state has really focused on this uh, issue because uh, it's not just Florida; it's the entire East Coast that's going to be threatened by this.
1: Yeah, our, our cousin has a has I guess or had two homes on Long Island, and he offered me uh, the use of one for a week. And I said to him, you know, you, surely you can rent it out. And he, um, but I'd, I'd be delighted to use it for the week. But aren't you going to sell it? And he said, Well, I have to sell it soon because pretty soon it won't be there. <laughs> so,
0: yeah, I mean it's a. Uh... Because we've had hurricanes, I think there's heightened awareness of this. There's a sensitivity to deal with how you prepare for emergencies. Um, so we're good at that. I don't think we're as good as we need to be as a country, and certainly I would say that Florida uh, as well, thinking about the long-term things. The things we know are going to occur and how do you create strategies to build resiliency and um, how do you adapt, and there are models around the world that uh, we could emulate Netherlands being one, uh, but other places as well.
1: I always wanted to ask you it, you know you when you were governor, you knew that uh that a hurricane was coming um, what did you do? I mean what did you physically do? You knew the hurricane was going to hit you know let 's say it was you were there on Friday and you knew knew it was going to hit on saturday what How did you oversee the you know the rescue operation i guess you would call it
0: yeah so we were um i mean 2004 2005 we had eight hurricanes and four tropical storms so we were recovering uh from the storms of 2004 when the storms of 2005 hit and we were preparing for these storms there was an enormous amount of work uh staging of personnel staging of generators Tarp's water, um, all of that has to be coordinated out of an emergency operations center, and there has to be complete coordination and communication with local and county governments. Uh, you know, it, when you're when you're in a leader public leadership position, the the part of the job that is the most fulfilling is when people really need your help. Right. Not when you're implementing your five point plan that most people don't care about. Although I, you know, was pretty passionate about my five point plans. <laughs> it was. You know, when 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 a hurricane was approaching, there was a sense of urgency uh, that was just it was really fulfilling in in so many ways. And I've had a rule that uh, when the wind subsided, I would be on the ground wherever the hurricane hit. And it was a it was a logistical challenge to do it. But part of the job of being governor is to show you care, you know. And the best way to show you care is to be is to be there. There were a lot of things I learned um, from one you know, hurricane to the next uh, as it related to special needs shelters. How do you get power back on? How do you pre-stage things in a more effective way? How do you get the um, e- evacuation routes to make sure that uh, they're powered up first? How do you make sure that gas stations are operational? I mean, we had periods where there was literally no gasoline in uh in the, in in gas stations and people were hoarding because they were fearful of not having, uh, right. not having the ability to access gasoline. So there's just a whole myriad of public health issues, economic issues, giving people a sense that things are going to be better issues. Uh, and, and to be honest with you, this is, this is something Florida does really well. It's not the governors, you know, I mean, every governor steps up to the plate and does Uh, does it in a different way. But we have an infrastructure in place here uh, that is well-trained, well-financed, if you will. Uh, And I'm really proud of the first responders that we have. One quick question, one quick story, John. When Katrina hit uh, Mississippi, it hit Key West first. It was a Cat 1 storm. It went to the Gulf. It kind of stalled out and gained strength. became a Cat 5 storm. At one point, it was the strongest storm ever recorded, I believe, It it subsided, uh, but it it was heading towards Pensacola, kind of waggled towards New Orleans, and then ended up going to Mississippi. And we were staging in anticipation of it going to Pensacola. We had a convoy of about 500 um, people, mostly National Guard, first responders, search and rescue people. And Craig Fugate, who was our head of emergency operations and then served with uh, President Obama eight years as the head of FEMA, called me up at 11 o'clock at night and said, uh, Governor, I think we need to keep going. The storm's not going to hit us. Uh, we need to keep going. So we did something that the rule rule books say you can't do, which is we crossed state lines and were the first responders in the six-county area of southern Mississippi. Uh, and the storm was devastating. Mm-hmm. The storm surge was incredible. So for three or four months, it was the Florida police officer's Deputy sheriffs, city managers, we were, you know, we were operating local government um, because all of the people that worked in southern Mississippi were displaced. That kind of cooperation and that kind of uh, just spirit, you know, happens when you're when you're well trained and when you're, you know, you're on fire to do the right thing. So uh, more often than not, um, Florida gets this stuff really done right. In other states, you could see Louisiana struggled with Katrina. Other states that didn't have a commitment to resource their di- divisions of emergency management or didn't have um, the training capabilities, they really struggled.
1: I wanted to ask you one last question about uh, unfunded liabilities, which is a subject that News Items uh, focuses on from time to time. Um, obviously, in states like New Jersey and Illinois, it's almost impossible to see how states can, uh, those states can dig out from under those debts. What is the, uh, what are, what's the situation with um, pension benefits for public employees in Florida and, uh, and the uh, associated medical uh, coverages?
0: Very little um unfunded um, health care costs it never never was negotiated uh, among state workers um, as it has been in other places. We do have an unfunded liability um principally based on the fact that we have a seven and i think it's seven and a half uh underlying uh interest rate for you know projected return
1: performance which yeah. is
0: you know pretty high. And so if you got went to what a prudent um, discount rate, you know, it would be probably five percent. And that that's the that's where 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 our deficit lies. Um, but we you know, the sins of the past, which is the big problem in many of the states that have pension shortfalls, uh, didn't exist in the, to the same extent in Florida. Um, so we've we've kept benefits lower and, and we've been more righteous about fully um, making you know full contrib- employer contributions to the pension fund. So we're probably in the top five states as it relates to the state board administration's uh, uh, deficit. Uh, every state has one. Some are just egregious. Florida's would be um, not nearly as bad. I mean, it's not fully funded, but it's, you know, it's probably 80 percent funded, something like that.
1: That's very good
0: you know so it's just another example if you look at per uh, per student funding for schools in states that have these big pension obligations they spend more per student than we do but if you if you actually looked at the amount of money being spent in the classroom in the here and now mm-hmm. uh there's there's close to parity and that's because the people in New Jersey and other places ha- have to first pay for Decisions made 20, 30 years ago about about pension obligations. And that squeezes out uh, spending in the here and now. And there doesn't seem to be the will to be able to change that. Places like Illinois, the benefits are protected by, uh, you know, it's a constitutional right. And so it's very difficult to untangle that. And it's just another example of why uh, people vote with their feet to move to places that are better run.
1: Yeah. We lived in Westchester County in New York, which is a bedroom community of New York City, Um, and just its, you know, just the county's unfunded liabilities are such that our taxes. uh, We lived in Irvington, New York, and when we moved there in in 2000, the uh, taxes were X, and the taxes today are 4X. Um, so it, you know, at some point that's just not sustainable. And as those people leave and go to Florida, um, it gets ever more unsustainable. And I think one of the, one of the, uh, your brother actually said to me, he thought that unfunded liabilities was one of the three major issues facing the country and, you know, in the next decade or so. Um, and I'm Pleased to hear that Florida is not in the hole that New York and Connecticut and New Jersey are.
0: No, it's a shame. And there really isn't, you either have to renegotiate the benefits um, or you have to raise taxes.
1: Or you have (laughs) to declare bankruptcy. Those
0: are palatable in most places. (laughs) Uh, And so it's, you know, it spirals down. It's something, and if you add Medicare, Medicaid, uh, all the, uh, unfunded liabilities of our federal entitlement system, you know, this, this, these numbers become astronomical, the net present value of, of those alone are like 50 trillion. And if you add the state and local, um, pension obligations, it's, it's, you know, it's in the trillions for sure. So, yeah, some point younger people, our children and grandchildren are going to rebel against the, uh, the old people that made these decisions that put a wet blanket on their aspirations. Yeah. I think they'll just cut them off, right? No more
1: social security, (laughs) no more Medicare. You're out of business. Good luck to you. Um, But uh, I want to wrap up uh, by asking you what you're doing now. What what occupies your days and nights?
0: Uh, My son and I are partners, which I recommend highly. We have an advisory business. We help um, mostly emerging businesses that are that have great ideas and help them with strategic advice and helping them develop their markets. Uh, there's been a, you know, as I mentioned, there's a lot of businesses like that now in Florida, which is a lot of fun. And then we have a, we partner with private equity firms. We invest alongside them to help businesses grow. And we've done in the last four years, we've done 10 deals, uh, totaling about $250 million of, equity investing in these businesses, and it's it's been a good time to be doing that. And um, we're now raising a fund to do the exact same thing in a fund structure rather than deal by deal. So business is great. The foundation that I'm the chairman of, uh, we work in 40 states to advocate meaningful reform of our K-12 system. Uh, this last year, I've, I've uh, slept with my wife every every night which uh, is a blessing. I haven't been on a plane, but one time. (laughs) So um, I worry about our country. I worry about a lot of people that have suffered because of of, uh, COVID. Uh, But uh, the Bush family is totally blessed.
1: Jeb, thank you so much for being with us. We'll see you in Maine. Thank you, John. John Ellis here again. Thank you so much for listening. Tune in again Mondays through Thursdays for our regular episodes where Rebecca and I discuss geopolitics, finance, science, and technology.